1: Previously unintercepted.
2: I guess
3: I could be pretty pissed off about what happened to me. But it's hard to stay mad
1: when there's so much money in the world. Sometimes I feel like I'm seeing it all at once, and it's too much. My stomach fills up like a balloon that's about to burst. Two quarter pounders with cheese, extra ketchup, bacon, no pickles, and fries supersize me and then I remember to relax and stop trying to hold on to it and then it flows through me like rain and I can't feel anything but gratitude for every single moment of my stupid little life you have no idea what I'm talking about I'm
4: sure
3: I mean I have no idea what I'm talking about but don't worry you will Believe me.
1: This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill, coming to you from the offices of the Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 37 of Intercepted.
3: Shape. That was just fake news by NBC, uh, which gives a lot of fake news lately, and it's frankly disgusting the way the press is able to
1: write whatever they want to write. Donald Trump is an enemy of the free press. His attacks on journalists and journalism reek of authoritarianism. His use of the term "fake news" is lifted directly from Joseph Gabble's playbook. He knows what he's doing and it's insidious. There are three specific incidents that I believe should be cause for grave concern by anyone in this country who believes that we must have an independent and a free press. First, Donald Trump recently went on a Twitter rampage against big corporate media outlets, specifically CNN and NBC. Now, I have no great love for either of these outlets. Both of these institutions have used the airwaves to promote U.S. government propaganda. They have retired U.S. military generals and admirals and CIA operatives on their payrolls as independent analysts, and they never disclose the conflicts of interest that some of these so-called experts have who profit from the very wars and conflicts that they're supposedly giving their independent views on. I've always been clear about this and I've criticized both networks repeatedly Including on their own airwaves. I also think that CNN and MSNBC and Fox um, are engaging in the terrorism expert industrial complex. Where you MSNBC, there has been no serious, hard-hitting critique of the president's foreign policy from the issues that actually are real but I that think distinguish him. We talk him. about this. CNN uh, needs to immediately withdraw all retired generals and colonels from its airwaves. You know, Fareed Zakaria. If that guy could have sex with this cruise missile attack, I think he would do it. I also went after Chuck Todd perhaps the most prominent figure at NBC News right now, he's the host of Meet the Press, for his demeaning of people that were calling for CIA torturers to be held accountable when Barack Obama was first elected president. Chuck, you called called it political catnip to talk about the CIA and Cheney's role in this because it, it it distracts from the important issues. This is a central issue, and you called it cable catnip. You prevent future torture by prosecuting past acts of torture. Okay, but let me, let me... So I want to be clear that I believe that all media outlets, particularly big, powerful corporate networks, should be criticized and blasted when they're in the wrong or they're serving as lapdogs for the powerful. But what Trump is doing is suggesting that news outlets that don't parrot his atrocious and often crazy talking points should have their licenses revoked. He said that CNN's job, this is what he believes, is to promote his brand of America, like Fox News does, all around the world. Those are very serious ideas for the president of the United States to just sort of float out there on Twitter. He's also stoking unfounded rage against the very institution of journalism. And he did this throughout the campaign at his rallies. And that can have grave consequences. I have serious issues with a number of CNN personalities and the way that the network as a whole gave Trump endless airtime, and they continue to do so at the expense of real reporting on serious crises, like the U.S.-supported genocide in Yemen, the plight of poor and working people in the United States, It's not that CNN or NBC don't cover these issues. It's that they're often squeezed in between covering Trump's latest tweets or embarrassments or Russia, Russia, Russia. The priorities are totally warped. At the same time, CNN has some incredible, brave international reporters and camera people and fixers who regularly risk their lives to tell stories that matter. I've met them in war zones around the world. These are not political hacks or retired generals profiting from wars. No, they're real journalists, and they deserve our defense against attacks from the most powerful figure in the United States and arguably the world right now. The second issue is that the Trump administration has dramatically expanded the number of leak investigations in the United States. And Trump seems to believe that the Justice Department should get into the business of arresting reporters ...who publish classified information. He told then-FBI Director James Comey that he should consider doing just that. The Justice Department right now is attempting to throw the book at an NSA contractor named Reality Winner... ...who they allege was the source of a document that was published by The Intercept. That document detailed alleged Russian operations aimed at targeting U.S. software companies that service the U.S. electoral system in a couple of dozen states in the United States. Reality Winner is right now being held without bond on charges of violating the Espionage Act. She could face decades in prison. In addition to this unjust denial of bail and the severity of the outrageous espionage charge against her and the potential prison sentence in this case— This is also an attack on journalism. Like Barack Obama, Donald Trump only wants journalists to publish official leaks or official pronouncements. That's not how real journalism works. And every news outlet should be standing against these attacks and against reality winners' imprisonment. The third issue. The U.S. government recently forced the television network RT to register as a foreign agent in the United States. RT has been accused by U.S. intelligence agencies, members of Congress, pundits of various political stripes of being a propaganda outlet for the Kremlin. RT has been cited as being part of an active, coordinated misinformation campaign aimed at influencing the 2016 presidential election. They were cited in the U.S. intelligence community's report. Academics... Journalists, politicians, and others who have appeared on RT recently found their names publicly listed by an anti-Trump group, accusing them essentially of guilt by association. The law that RT was forced to register under is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which officially passed in 1938, and its aim was to stop the spread of Nazi propaganda.
5: The need for this legislation is perhaps most clearly demonstrated by the case of Russian propaganda networks like RT America and Sputnik International.
1: The Committee to Protect Journalists, which is a very mainstream U.S. press freedom organization, they've come out against this move, saying that it could set a dangerous precedent that could result in criminalizing individual journalists who work for RT. Under the law, RT is going to be forced to include a public disclaimer on any information that they send out in the United States, and the network is going to have to file a version of all of its reports—this could also mean social media transmissions—with the U.S. Justice Department within 48 hours of transmission. There are only a handful of media outlets that have been forced to register as foreign agents. I am entirely opposed to this action by the U.S. government. Already, Russia, which is a heinous enemy of journalism, has said that it's now going to intensify the targeting of U.S. media outlets operating in Russia in retaliation for this action the U.S. has taken against RT. But that's not the only reason that I'm against this action. By singling out RT, the U.S. government is further eroding the very idea of a free press. Americans have a right to get their news from a variety of sources— including state-funded media outlets like the BBC, Al Jazeera, and yes, RT. And when we start allowing the government to make up rules about who is and who is not a journalist, then the door for attacks on media organizations widens and widens. Of course, RT broadcasts propaganda. It is a Kremlin-funded media outlet. And by the way, Fox News is a propaganda outlet. It's not state-sponsored, but it's propaganda nonetheless. Should Fox News be required to register as an agent for white supremacists or racists or Donald Trump? Should they be required to put a disclaimer saying that their reports are on behalf of the current president of the United States? You know who has a show on RT? Larry King. Yeah, remember him from CNN, the guy with the suspenders? He says RT has never edited or intervened in his show. So RT is supposed to put a disclaimer. On Larry King's program, saying it's on behalf of the Russian government? What about former MSNBC host and partisan Democrat Ed Schultz's show on RT? It's just nonsense. I've appeared on RT a few times over the years, and I've many times declined to appear. There were some shows and hosts that I thought were responsible, and some that I didn't. There are aspects of RT's coverage that is undoubtedly propagandistic. And there were times when RT was willing to have me or other journalists on to discuss important stories that big U.S. outlets were systematically ignoring or when they were parroting the U.S. government's line. And RT reported on those stories accurately.
6: I'm just curious why then it is that we haven't seen you on every single news channel, why all of those real news networks out there aren't dying to get the story from you.
1: Yeah, so far it's just been Democracy Now!, Al Jazeera, and Russia Today, RT, that have expressed serious interest in this story. And I I should say, I was asked numerous times to be on Bill O'Reilly's show on Fox News, and I declined all of those invites unless they would do it live. We'll do it live.
3: Okay. We'll We'll do it live! Fuck it!
1: Why did I insist on doing it live? Because I didn't trust Bill O'Reilly and Fox News to edit the interview accurately. And by the way, I also spoke out when the Obama Justice Department served a warrant on Google for Fox News reporter James Rosen's personal emails, as I did when it obtained the Associated Press's phone records. The point of all of this is not that we co-sign all or even most of what RT is doing, or that RT is not a Russian state media organization. It is. The point is that it's dangerous to have the U.S. government Deciding what constitutes journalism and who constitutes a journalist and selectively choosing which media outlets should be subjected to these restrictions and which should not. There are an incredible number of state-funded outlets who broadcast in the United States and have not been subjected to these restrictions. Where do we draw the line once we start down this path? Now, Trump is no doubt an enemy of the press, and Trump's authoritarian rhetoric is chilling. At the same time, we have to be honest— Trump did not start the U.S. war on press freedom. And I think it's a mistake to view his attacks out of that historical context. Barack Obama, he prosecuted record numbers of whistleblowers and leakers under the Espionage Act. Leaks related to national security can put people at risk. Obama's Justice Department threatened New York Times reporter James Risen with prison if he did not give up his source. Obama also personally intervened in Yemen to keep a Yemeni reporter who exposed the U.S. secret bombing campaign of Yemen in prison. Barack Obama was no friend of the free press either. Under Bush, the U.S. killed one of Al Jazeera's correspondents in Iraq. It was a direct hit on the position he was broadcasting from. The U.S. military also shelled a hotel Killing two foreign journalists, one a Spanish cameraman and the other a Reuters photojournalist, Bush had Al Jazeera cameraman Sami el hajj locked up in Guantanamo for six years without charge, where they were trying to force him to confess to a non-existent link between Al Jazeera and Al Qaeda. A U.S. helicopter gunship gleefully sprayed bullets on Iraqi civilians and killed two Reuters journalists.
3: Come on, fire. Hey,
1: Roger. In 1999, Bill Clinton authorized the bombing of radio television Serbia and killed 16 media workers. Most of those people were makeup artists and technicians and security guards. Not a single propagandist for Slobodan Milosevic was killed, only the technical workers.
3: And we act to stand united with our allies for peace. By acting now, we are upholding our values, protecting our interests and advancing the
1: cause of peace. U.S. presidents always hold up the United States as this beacon of freedom. And for some people, it certainly is. But let's not pretend there's not been a long bipartisan war against journalism and journalists waged by the United States government. Across the globe, journalists are under attack and dying in record numbers, whether it's targeting journalistic sources in the U.S., or murdering journalists in Mexico, or assassinating them in Russia, It's the responsibility of all of us in the news media to stand up and collectively say no. That's true under Trump, and it should remain true the next time a Democrat is in the White House. Okay, on with the show. The unconscionable genocidal destruction of Yemen is continuing this week unabated. But don't tell that to New York Times columnist and official chronicler of taxi drivers and hotel concierges who miraculously deliver perfect sound bites whenever he's in their presence. I'm talking about Tom Friedman. No, Tom took to the pages of the paper of record to heap praise on the brutal thugs running Saudi Arabia's vicious war against the poorest nation in the Arab world. Tom mentions that there is a humanitarian nightmare in Yemen, and he refers to a Saudi-backed war as though the Saudis are just supporting this war that's being waged by unknown assailants. Forget about mentioning the U.S. support for this brutal destruction. No, Tom had more important thoughts to share on the valuable real estate that is his New York Times column. This story of Tom of Arabia begins with our mustached hero arriving in Riyadh during the Saudi winter but soon discovering it's actually an Arab Spring, Saudi-style. You see, Tom informs us that this revolution is not coming from the people, but from the very top. And the hero of this story is the 32-year-old crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, or as Tom calls him, MBS. Tom manages to make his way from the airport to MBS's ornate adobe-walled palace. And there, Tom gathers with a group of people who have the pulse of the ordinary folks in the kingdom. The crown prince and his brother, the Saudi ambassador to the U.S., and an assortment of several other senior government officials. According to Tom, they shared different lamb dishes that spiced the conversation. Fried
3: cheese with club sauce. Popcorn
6: shrimp with club sauce. Chicken fingers. Stop it, you're making me dizzy. Spicy clubs. No, I mean, stop it.
1: After nearly four grueling hours with the prince and his crew and the lamb, Tom tells us that he surrendered at 1.15 a.m. to MBS's youth, with Tom pointing out that he's exactly twice the crown prince's age. And then Tom observed, and I quote, it's been a long, long time though since any Arab leader wore me out with a fire hose of new ideas about transforming his country. Okay, I'm not going to continue with this anymore. But the point is that this is the crap that Thomas Friedman writes in the so-called paper of record while Yemen is being utterly destroyed by the very people he was enjoying a variety of lamb dishes with. And Saudi officials, they sent Friedman's piece around to journalists in Washington, D.C. That's usually a sign that you're doing something wrong. 60 Minutes, they recently did a story on Yemen that completely removed any U.S. involvement in this slaughter. And the U.S. Congress refuses to do anything that would actually end the U.S. role in this unforgivable mass crime. There are a few members of Congress who have fought to cut off U.S. support for the Saudis and to end the annihilation of Yemen. The most vocal of these is Senator Chris Murphy. He's a Democrat from Connecticut, and he is on the Foreign Relations Committee. And he joins me right now. Senator Murphy, lay out what you believe the U.S. role has been in this war and the devastation that we're witnessing right now in Yemen.
4: I do not believe that Saudi Arabia could conduct this military campaign in Yemen without the United States. The United States provides the targeting assistance. The United States provides the munitions. The United States, in fact... Provides the refueling uh, to the Saudi and coalition jets mid air. Um, Without U.S. logistical support, without U.S. weapons, without U.S. arms sales, they simply could not be engaging in this destructive bombing campaign. At any time, the United States could cut off our support. And in the face of a million cholera cases, in the face of Thousands and thousands of Yemenis dying and many more starving to death. We have yet to deliver that message to the Saudis. And so I I make a very tough argument, but I think it's a fair one uh, that every single death inside Yemen today has a U.S. imprint on it. And when I talk to Yemenis, as I remind my colleagues all the time, they tell me that inside Yemen, this is not seen as a Saudi bombing campaign. This is seen as a U.S. Saudi bombing campaign. And so the long term effect of this is that we are radicalizing potentially millions of Yemenis uh, against the United States.
1: Now, when you and Senator Rand Paul, who, of course, is a Republican, you co-sponsored the Stop Arming Terrorist Act, and a majority of your Democratic colleagues, now that Trump is president, joined on to that effort. But you had a much more difficult time, it seems, convincing your Democratic colleagues to take this stance when Barack Obama was president. To what do you attribute that? Well, they were two different resolutions.
4: Admittedly, the first resolution to stop arms sales to the Saudis in 2016 uh, was arguably not directly connected to the Yemen war. Uh, This arms sale uh, in 2017 was also during that period of time. The Trump administration removed basically all uh, vestiges of pressure that the Obama administration had applied on the Saudis to try to correct their behavior. If you remember, Obama did in the end. And stop selling these precision-guided weapons to the Saudis because of their targeting errors and because of their targeting successes when they were going after humanitarian sites. So the Trump administration was worse on this question than the Obama administration was. The arms sale was much more directly relevant to the war inside Yemen. Um, and the humanitarian catastrophe was a year worse in 2017 when we took that vote. So sure, maybe some of the reason that more Democrats voted against it uh, this year was because because it wasn't a democrat in the white house but there are also some reasonable explanations for why some of those votes shifted
1: another part of all of this that i find somewhat curious is the fact that whether it's a democrat in power or a republican in power it's sort of just assumed that the big picture line on saudi arabia is that they're necessary to our national security and throughout both the bush administration and obama administration you had the united states relying very heavily on Saudi intelligence to select its own targets inside of Yemen with drone strikes against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. But in general, also, the Saudis seem to be dictating a lot of U.S. policy on the Arabian Peninsula, particularly in Yemen. Why is that the case? And do you think that the U.S. should be relying so heavily on the Saudis? It's a real head-scratcher,
4: and it's an issue that I constantly raise here in Washington. As the flow of Saudi money moves through the Wahhabis to extremist groups and radical clerics all around the world, our eyes should be wider open than ever before as to the threat to U.S. national security that comes out of Saudi Arabia. Now, certainly, there are important counterterrorism intelligence programs between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. They have been able to achieve a kind of temporary detente between the GCC and Israel. That's important to us. But the billions of dollars that flows out of this country that ends up uh, radicalizing young men to join groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS, that is directly contrary to U.S. national security interests. And so I have never understood why we are so deeply in bed with the Saudis. It probably has to do with our prior dependence on the Saudis for oil to power our country. It probably has something to do with all of the money that they have put into this town. Um, You know, there are uh, many, many think tanks in Washington, D.C. that have Saudi money and end up coming to the Hill to recommend that in the strategic security interests of the United States that we must maintain our unbreakable alliance with the Saudis. They've been uh, done a good job of cementing this alliance with oil and now with money flowing into Washington. And I think there are more people now than ever that are questioning that relationship, but they don't tend to be in this administration.
1: You know, Saudi diplomats have been sending around this week uh, to journalists Thomas Friedman's column in The New York Times, which was basically just a kind of cartoonish uh, praising of the Saudi crown prince and doesn't even mention the direct consequences that you're citing that can be linked to the Saudi bombing and the U.S. support for it. You think this bubble fantasy, we're just going to let it grow? Well, suck on this. Okay, That, Charlie, was what this war was about. We could have hit Saudi Arabia, it was part of that bubble. Could it hit Pakistan. We hit Iraq because we could. At the same time, 60 minutes. I give them credit. They took uh, 13 or 15 minutes to talk about
3: Yemen. This mother, Amina Saleh, told us her family left after Saudi-led airstrikes killed more than 70 people in her town. The planes would fly above us and fire rockets and missiles like this, she told us. At night, there was no sleep. We were holding the young ones. She said that her older son was saying, we're going to die. She told us we saw people die right in front of us.
1: But none of what you're talking about was included in that. It's almost as though there's this epic crime with no perpetrator when everyone actually knows that there's a perpetrator. There's multiple perpetrators
4: remember what is the greatest threat to the United States today every politician will tell you it's the potential of terrorist attack where does that attack emanate from it's Sunni extremist groups where does the money come from that uh, creates an intolerant version of Islam that prompts people to want to do violence against non-believers um, it's Saudi Arabian money it's Gulf State money that comes out of the Wahhabi movement and you know you can't tell the story of Yemen um, just through the lens of the epic humanitarian catastrophe, you have to acknowledge that the most lethal arm of al-Qaeda, AQAP, um, has gotten bigger and stronger inside Yemen during the civil war because they have sort of gobbled up the ungovernable territory created by the civil war. ISIS, which didn't have a footprint in Yemen, now has a pretty big one. Uh, And so if we're really fighting these radical groups, why on earth are we participating in a war inside Yemen that's actually causing those radical groups to get stronger?
1: Do you believe that the Houthis, which is primarily a northern-based Shiite minority movement in Yemen that does in fact control the majority of the capital right now, do you believe that this is directly an Iranian proxy at this point?
4: Iran has taken advantage of uh, this civil war in order to draw closer to the Houthis. But there has never been a command and control relationship in the way that exists with Hezbollah in many places. But every single day that the Saudis continue to drop bombs inside Yemen is a day that the Houthis get closer to the Iranians. The Saudis are essentially creating the, you know, their own problem by pushing together these uh, two groups. So no, it has never been as simple as the Iranians running a proxy army inside Yemen. Um, But They are becoming more interdependent, but that's because this civil war has perpetuated and then the Houthis see no political route out of this mess. And by the way, you know as well as I do that the Houthis are not blameless when it comes to the humanitarian uh, catastrophe. Um, They have hit civilians. They have contributed to this nightmare. Most of the deaths are caused by Saudi activity, but there are plenty of very bad actors on the Houthi side as well.
1: What is the reason that you're given by the Democrats who are not on board with what you're doing. I mean, clearly you've done more than any lawmaker in your official capacity to raise awareness specifically on what's happening in Yemen. And I give you, and we've said this on our show, enormous credit for naming the U.S. role in this. But what's the defense that any of your Democratic colleagues offer you and why they won't join your effort?
4: Well, again, let, let, let's just remind ourselves that there aren't many Democrats left that oppose my efforts to cut off funding for uh, this conflict. I think there were you know, maybe three or four Democrats in the Senate who voted against my measure earlier this year. But to the extent that there has been resistance, it is tied up in this construct that you are handed when you are elected to Congress that the United States are resolute allies with the Saudis and that it is sacrilegious to break that bond. There is also a belief um, that's been built up by the Saudi lobby here that the Houthis are agents of Iran. And if you are an anti-Iranian member of Congress, then you have to be supporting the Saudis inside Yemen. Ultimately, the the Saudis are going to be cut off here. I mean, we are trending in a direction uh, such that the next arms sale will not be approved by Congress.
1: What can someone in your position do to break through the silence on this when you have North Korea and you have a president who seems to be trying to tweet us either into a war or into being the laughingstock of the world? Well, I wish that
4: the the famine and the cholera epidemic moved people. I mean, this is not a naturally occurring famine. This is a man-made famine. This is a man-made cholera outbreak, and the United States has been a participant in causing it. I wish that that was enough. I think we've got to talk more about the national security implications here. I think we need to make it very clear to people that al-Qaeda, the group that Donald Trump tells us he is going to stamp out, is getting stronger inside that country because we are giving them space to grow. So I think for the members of Congress that are still left over that haven't joined us here, uh, we've got to make it very clear that we are putting this country at risk by continuing to be involved in this civil war.
1: One of the so-called adults in the room, Defense Secretary General James Mattis, it has a very hawkish track record with regards to Iran. And you definitely have people permeating the Trump circle on a foreign policy level that believe that Iran Contra was not a scandal but a model for how the United States should be conducting itself. Are you concerned that part of what we're seeing here in Yemen with the Trump administration adopting this line that it's really a war against Iran could lead to U.S. military action in Iran?
4: I don't have any information or evidence that the administration is planning military activity against Iran directly. But what I know is that the more deeply that you get involved in these conflicts, and we have not yet talked about the fact that we now have upwards of a 1,000 U.S. troops inside Syria today, the harder it is to avoid conflicts with countries that are also involved. What we saw in Syria, for instance, is that when Iranian-backed militia forces got too close to U.S. forces, we fired upon them. We attacked Bashar al-Assad under the pretext that his— His chemical weapons usage posed a danger to U.S. forces that were in the region. The way in which this administration has broadened out its authority to conduct military activity in the Middle East suggests that it thinks it has the legal ability to go after anyone and any actor in any country in the region that potentially poses a threat to U.S. forces. Iran is on that list. Uh, And so the broad jurisdiction that the administration has granted itself uh, regarding military activity could conceivably convince them to launch an attack against the Iranians without congressional approval. Now, I don't have any information that they are planning on doing that. Uh, I just worry that they have given themselves a carte blanche in the region that seems to have no end.
1: You know, the last report that we have from Special Operations Command in Tampa is that the U.S. has special operations personnel deployed in more than 130 countries around the world. Now, that doesn't mean that they're engaged in combat in all of those countries, but recent events in places like Mali and Niger and increasingly Somalia are a good indication that there is a tremendous amount happening in the the shadows under this president, but it also happened a lot under Barack Obama, that not only are the American people not aware of it, but the Congress doesn't seem to be briefed on many of these operations or, or doesn't seem to be demanding the information that would be required to effectively oversee it. How concerned are you with the fact that we have 800 troops in Niger, 400 troops in Mali? We don't know how many troops are in Somalia. All of these places are potential areas where U.S. body bags could be coming home, but also actions could be taken that cause blowback on us down the line.
4: I think we have to go back and take a look at how we authorize this dispersion of U.S. forces around the world. What we learned in Niger was that those troops are there under a authority given to the executive by Congress in Title X to help train and equip foreign forces. Now, it sort of doesn't feel like we were in the business of training and equipping, given that we had our guys out there doing real-life dangerous missions. And technically, were we with local troops? We were, but it seemed like we were engaged in more operational capacity than we were in training capacity. So here's one way to solve this. And I haven't submitted this as legislation yet. I just think it's worth thinking about. Why doesn't Congress in the annual defense uh, authorization bill actually list out the countries that the Department of Defense is allowed to do this training and equipping in? Uh, If they have to do it on an emergency basis, that's fine. They can do it for the rest of the year. But they have to come back the next year and get explicit authorization. Right now, um, it's a blank check that they can train and equip in any country they want. They can put an unlimited number of special forces operators into those countries. And there's, as we've learned, real fuzzy territory between training and soldiering. Uh, So there are ways that we could look at to get Congress more deeply involved in the question of where we are deployed. We could actually have a debate about that every year in the defense authorization bill. And my feeling is that that would be a lot closer to the division vision of power on foreign policy that the Founding Fathers
1: imagined? Senator Chris Murphy is a Democrat from Connecticut. He serves on the Foreign Relations Committee. Right now in the United States, we are witnessing an unprecedented moment. Scores of women are coming forward and bravely naming the men who have sexually harassed, assaulted, raped, and otherwise abused or mistreated them. The cases that we read about or hear about are, of course, those involving powerful men, men who use their positions and influence to assault or harass women. The meticulous reporting on Hollywood kingpin Harvey Weinstein seems to have opened a floodgate uh, for women to speak out and demand accountability. And it's not just women. In the case of actor Kevin Spacey, his alleged victims were men. Some of these cases have resulted in the firing of prominent men in journalism or the resignation of others. In some cases, they may result in criminal prosecutions. We also know that Harvey Weinstein hired two private security companies to spy on and dig up dirt on some of his accusers. One of those firms was an Israeli company staffed by former Mossad agents and other Israeli military and intelligence units. Right now, we also have a president who has been accused of rape sexual harassment, and assault, and who was caught on tape bragging about how he grabs women by the pussy. The president has come out in support of the Alabama Senate candidate, Roy Moore, who is facing a barrage of allegations, including assaulting teenage girls. The longest serving member of Congress, Democrat John Conyers, has just stepped down as chair of the Judiciary Committee following public allegations that he sexually harassed and possibly assaulted women working for him. Conyers is denying all of this and says he is going to fight this. Al Franken's political career at the same time is very much in question. And there are certainly scores of men in media, film, government, and other industries who walk around wondering when their abuse or harassment of women will come to light. This is definitely a historic moment and one which has the potential to bring much needed change to the sexist and misogynist culture that permeates our society. But that's going to require not only the brave blowing of the whistle by women, but men actually listening and institutions taking action. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by two people. Katie Baker is an investigative reporter at BuzzFeed News. She's tenaciously covered this beat for years. And Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Welcome both of you to Intercepted.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks, Jeremy. I was trying to think of any kind of historical analog to what we're witnessing right now with so many people coming forward and stating what happened to them at the hands of uh, powerful men, whether they're in Hollywood or media, et cetera. And there seems like there is, in many of these cases, this immediate sense of there's going to be accountability right now. The closest thing I can think of is like the overthrow of dictatorships uh, or like kind of like the Arab Spring, where you see this sort of instant reaction, the likes of which I can't recall another moment in time that would be similar to this. How how do you see this moment that we're in right now, given all of the reporting you've done for years on these issues?
5: I think what's unprecedented is not just people sharing their stories of sexual assault and harassment, but the almost immediate accountability that appears to be happening, at least with famous people. I've written about a lot of powerful men who women accused of sexual assault and harassment who faced bad publicity, but no repercussions. And I think what's happening right now is really exciting and overwhelming because it does feel like the consequences are happening literally the same day in many cases.
1: A lot of the coverage of this right now links back to the Harvey Weinstein moment and this deluge of allegations against him from a variety of very prominent women in Hollywood. You also have the reality of Donald Trump being president and openly bragging about sexually assaulting women. You know, I'm automatically attracted
4: to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You Just kiss. I don't even know what.
1: And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything.
3: Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy.
2: <laughs> I can do anything.
1: Not to mention the fact that there are serious questions about whether he's raped people or committed acts beyond what we already know that he's owned. Your view on sort of where we are right now.
0: Well, I mean, I think Donald Trump's election in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape and all the allegations that The New York Times had reported before that, it really tapped into a well of fury and outrage among women. I think it helped sort of establish that this was a really legitimate area for like mainstream newspapers to pursue. It takes a lot of resources, as we all know, to pursue these stories in the New York Times, like devoted to, you know, top reporters for almost a year, right on the story. But it is, you know, ironic that basically, he seems to have gotten off scot-free. And I think that it's, Perfectly appropriate for him to be facing heat. It's unclear kind of what path that could take politically. But I think it's very legitimate how those women feel who came forward with their stories about Trump and basically felt like they were you know, slapped in the face by the result of the election.
1: Katie, you've you've written um, about uh, Juanita Broderick, who uh, for now for several decades has uh, been emphatic that she was sexually assaulted by Bill Clinton.
6: It was not consensual. You're saying that Bill Clinton sexually assaulted you, that he raped you. Yes.
1: What do we know about Bill Clinton and sexual assault, sexual harassment, you did a deep dive into Juanita Broderick. Like, what's the truth of that as you understand it from your reporting?
5: In the summer of 2016, my editor Ben Smith suggested I try and profile Juanita Broderick because no mainstream media outlet had done so since she first spoke out in the late 90s. I did not know who Juanita Broderick was. I'm not that young. I'm 30. So it's not as if I had no excuse. And I was when I started researching and reading up on her extremely credible, consistent allegations, I was just really shocked that I had no idea who she was. And I asked people of various ages, older as well as younger. And even if people kind of remembered her, no one really people just thought, oh well those weren't credible or they didn't quite remember them. But Juanita Broderick has said for years that Bill Clinton raped her in a hotel room, not a gray area situation. She said that she was supposed to have a business meeting with him when he forcibly raped her. And the reasons why she didn't speak out right away are extremely credible. The same types of reasons that we're hearing almost every day right now. She was scared, she didn't think anybody would believe her, she felt intimidated. And she only ultimately spoke out because reporters were on her. She didn't seek out reporters, sort of like what we're seeing with Roy Moore and his accusers didn't go to the Washington Post. The Washington Post came to them. Juanita was bombarded until she finally sat down and tried to tell her story. And then she was almost immediately disbelieved and dismissed.
0: I was really struck by um, in your piece how you show this very revealing chronicle of the costs when these kinds of cases are politicized and used as like, you know, weaponized political footballs. And you as much as you are respectful to her and her credibility in her story, you also raise some really hard questions about how she allowed her story to be used.
5: Completely. It was a really, really complicated story to write, especially at that time. That was before Juanita had officially decided to essentially join the Trump campaign and go to the debates and sit there and really campaign for him, essentially.
0: Okay. Hi, I'm I'm Juanita Broderick, and I'm here to support Donald Trump. I tweeted recently, and Mr. Trump retweeted it, that actions speak louder than words. Mr. Trump may have said some bad words, but Bill Clinton raped me and Hillary Clinton threatened me. I don't think there's any comparison.
5: Juanita Broderick kept telling me that the only reason she was voting for Trump was because she didn't want Hillary to win and that she wasn't ever going to work for his campaign. And I could kind of tell that that she was lying and that was the direction she was going in. But I also completely understood why, because if you find her allegations credible, she has been dismissed not just by the Democratic Party, but by the types of progressive organizations that typically support and believe rape victims. And then at the same time, you had Breitbart treating her story with the sensitivity of Jezebel or something going, well, it's very common for rape victims to not come forward. And and this all makes a lot of sense. And then you had liberal publications completely ignoring it. And I agree that the politicization of sexual assault claims is really troubling. And I think that we're seeing that happening right now as well.
1: Uh, Betsy, I wanted to ask you about this other major uh, high-profile case that took place during this same time period in terms of when it came to public light, and that was the Clarence Thomas nomination to the Supreme Court. Anita Hill, even this past week, was on the Sunday talk shows and was calling out both Republicans and Democrats for their role, not only in perpetrating these kinds of crimes against women, but in building this wall of silence around them.
0: I think we're really at the tip of the iceberg here. Uh, many stories have already come out. But there are still women who are marginalized, women who right. are in minimum wage jobs, women of color who may be fearful of coming out forward with their stories because they don't want to embarrass right. people racially. Uh, the, there are all kinds of things at play.
1: Clarence Thomas would not be confirmed to the Supreme Court today. Is that your assessment?
0: I would say that's a fair assumption. I remember personally watching it, being completely glued to it and horrified. After approximately three months of working there, he asked me to go out socially with him. What happened next?
6: Hold up. What was that?
1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information,
0: visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And telling the world about it are the two most difficult things, experiences of my life. It is only after a great deal of agonizing consideration and sleepless number, great number of sleepless nights that I am able to talk of these unpleasant matters to anyone but my close friends. I just couldn't believe, you know, having this feminist education, I couldn't believe that, like, things were really this bad, that, like, not only would you get harassed like this, but you'd come forward and then to be subjected to this kind of, you know, character destruction. And then I thought, you know, sort of hopefully, well, this will provoke, you know, a conversation. There's a lot of feminist organizing around it. But actually then what we saw over the succeeding couple of decades is not a whole lot of progress. And in fact... We had the development of this entire system, which in, in many cases has served the interests of the harassers, has like as we saw with Weinstein, basically, you know, he had this whole apparatus with lawyers and, you know, NDAs and settlements. And if you look now at what's gone on in Congress, that now it's under the spotlight what's happening w- with the congressional system for investigating reports of sexual harassment in light of the accusations against John Conyers, it's coming under long overdue scrutiny that basically it, it's essentially a mechanism for covering up all of these payouts. And there's calls um, for it to reveal not only, you know, the, the people who in the last year, but going retroactively. If that happens, if, if we actually see, you know, get some sunlight into that and see what's happened over the last 20 years, you're going to see a lot more people going down.
1: The House Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi, was on Meet the Press this weekend, and she quite clearly tried to draw a distinction between the allegations against her Democratic colleagues
6: and Roy Moore. John Conyers is an icon in our country. He has done a, gr- a great deal to protect women, at violence against women act, which the left wing, right
2: wing is now quoting me as praising him for his work on that. And he did great work on that. But the fact is, uh, as John reviews his case, which he knows, which I don't. I believe he will do, I
6: believe that he will, excuse me, may I finish my sentence, that he will do the right thing.
1: And a lot of people went berserk at her, uh, and I think rightly so. What did you make of the way that she talked about John Conyers and the allegations against him versus Roy Moore and the allegations against him?
5: Well, I think this goes back to what we were just discussing about Juanita Broderick, the politicization of sexual assault claims, the way that they're used by politicians to attack opposite side. But as we're seeing now and as we've seen for decades, when it comes to their own party, both sides are not very good at taking accountability. And I definitely think that there's no accountability without transparency, which is why all of this news that's coming out both from Weinstein to Conyers about all of these confidential settlements and NDAs. I report a lot on academia and they call it passing the trash there. If people are allowed to payout settlements, and there's no record, then people can just go from job to job, whether that's in Hollywood and academia and politics, without anybody knowing what really happened. And in my experience, at least, that means oftentimes that they face multiple accusations of the same behavior.
0: I do think that we are seeing some progress, though, in that there are prominent Democrats really calling for accountability for Al Franken and, and John Conyers, really vocal people like Jackie Spears and Kristen Gillibrand. So, I mean, I think there is more willingness Definitely. now than before, you know, Nancy Pelosi aside, to actually really clean our own house first. And you even see this like with Fox News, right, and some of the women who came forward there and and what ultimately happened.
5: Well, something I was really struck by is last week when Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, Uh,
0: I think in one case specifically, uh, Senator Franken has admitted wrongdoing and the president hasn't. I think that's a very clear distinction, Major.
1: What Trump has sort of shown is if you just bulldoze through this and you refuse to cede any territory, Mm -hmm. it's like the guy won the presidency. He has more than a dozen allegations, specific allegations of either rape or other forms of sexual assault and harassment against him. He openly brags about this, and he won. I mean, the message that that has sent, and I think the Roy Moore thing taps into it, is just deny, 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 fake news, fake news, and that's my model for doing it.
3: He totally denies it. He says it didn't happen, and, you know, you have to listen to him also. You're talking about...
1: He said 40 years ago, this did not happen. So,
0: you know. That is partly the consequence of what we've been talking about. Like, all of these charges have been so politicized for so long. The nasty way that the parties operate with opposition research kind of allowed Trump to say, this is just fake news. This is just another example of like the Hillary oppo research. And then look at Bill and then he trots out all Bill's accusers and he puts them in the front row. And it just became part of that sort of circus.
1: Let's talk about men in our industry in news media. The most prominent recent case uh, is probably Glenn Thrush, who was at Politico now at the New York Times. And he basically has done a kind of what I would call a sort of culpa, where he's saying, oh, yeah, maybe I was uh, inappropriate, but I was an alcoholic. And and what, what do you make of those kinds of responses? That, and see, Glenn Thrush is not alone in sort of treating it that way.
5: Something that I am really interested in thinking more about is, what do we do with all of these men? If the Me Too movement shows how endemic, not just sexual assault and rape bar but sexual harassment and other coercive forms of gender-based discrimination, whatever you want to call it from more minor grievances all the way down to rape. And I think if we're going to talk about everything on the spectrum which I have been trying to do for years in my reporting and that I and which I really support, we have to think what does rehabilitation look like? What does it mean for someone to be held accountable? You know, we can't just expect all the men in our lives to disappear from the face of the earth. I don't want to send more people to prison personally. So, you know, what do you do? Should companies be held accountable? Should institutions be held accountable? Unfortunately, I do not have the answers, but this is something I've been thinking about a lot. And I do think that I don't want to put more responsibility on victims to have to hold their assaulters or harassers accountable and make sure they do better. But I also don't feel that optimistic about institutions doing the work to make sure people are going through counseling or whatever else we decide would show that somebody was was really changing their behavior.
1: Dylan Byers, who who now is at CNN, uh, he now has deleted this tweet because he said he was misunderstood. But he tweeted that, obviously, the focus of this should be on the victims. But what an incredible drain of talent this has resulted in. And it's like, first of all, I want to ask him, like, what is the world missing from Mark Halperin disappearing <laughs> from our lives? Zero. It makes Morning Joe slightly more tolerable. But What should the consequences be? I don't necessarily mean legally in courts, but in this industry.
0: In terms of the talent drain, what my immediate thought was, well, what about the massive drain of talent that this epidemic of sexual harassment has produced in terms of women in leadership? There are countless stories. If you look hard, it's like, okay, what happened after this this person was harassed? Like a lot of them have taken a different turn. They choose a different career. They leave that organization and they don't have that path to rise up. So I think that's what we need to be focused on and also on. The sort of opportunities that this kind of crisis and discussion creates for a different kind of path to leadership for women, because I think it really does. I mean, women are not perfect in power. There are women in many of these scenarios who played powerful roles, like Charlie Rose's producer, right, was an enabler and has really, you know, apologized for what she done. So it's not perfect to have a woman in power, but. I do believe it makes a difference, and I do think that if we can really gain anything from this moment, you know, it's going to shift the overall gender power dynamics in the industry.
5: I completely agree with Betsy. I mean, one thing I hope comes out of this moment is ensuring that there's more women in positions of power as imperfect as they are. I wonder, (laughs) I mean,
0: maybe it's just a fantasy, but like, it is interesting to imagine what Hollywood would be like, what changes in film and television we'll see if this genuinely empowers women in that industry in producing and directing and writing roles? Because I think we do see the sort of sexism of the behind the scenes part of the industry reflected on the screen.
1: I wanted to ask you both, you know, some weeks ago, it came to public light that um, there was this Google spreadsheet that was shared by, we don't know necessarily the specific individuals, but led to believe that it's women in media that was referred to as the shitty media men list. And you had dozens of names of people working in media. And then it had specific allegations against them. And uh, some of those cases ended up in the public uh, light. And in some cases, there seemed to be validity to it. In others, it seems plausible that some of the men that are being accused on that list by anonymous individuals may not have anything that they've done. And it's sort of been used by the Mike Cernoviches of our current world to try to destroy people's careers. What do you think about that specifically, that shitty media men list, but also the sort of anonymity of some of the allegations um, against a variety of men.
0: First of all, it has to be understood as what it was originally intended as like a document that to be shared among women privately. It wasn't ever intended in the first place for public consumption. And the accusations on there, while, as you note, some of them have turned into real cases where real victims have come forward, that is not true of a lot of the stuff on that list. And we do have to kind of take this whole situation very seriously, and part of that means, like, distinguishing when you have an actual credible accuser, a person who's making a specific claim, and a random anonymous list circulating that doesn't even have any particular individual attached to any of the allegations on on it. So that belongs in a different category, and we have to just take seriously what evidence is before us. And that means believing women who come forward as a starting point.
5: As far as the list goes, when I first saw it, my first thought was this is not a true community resource because it is anonymously accessible and edited by anyone. And I support women gossiping and sharing stories. And I think that's crucial. And I understand that women that aren't as connected or that you know are newer to media might really benefit from a list when they couldn't get that gossip firsthand. But definitely as a reporter who, as I just said, really thinks a lot about how to support people's stories, my first thought when I saw the list was, oh, my God, this is not going to end well for the women on the list. You know, who knows if they're even writing this themselves. I definitely found it alarming. Then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, this is a a messy solution to a messy problem. And I've written about women coming together in similar situations in different industries before. And often people feel like they have no other option, especially when investigations are often covered up by – confidentiality agreements or otherwise, I think that people often feel that they have no other option but to write on the bathroom wall, so to speak. And so I'm really sympathetic to it, and I understand it. But definitely as a reporter, my first thought when I saw the list was, is this the best way to to create change? However, it's been a month or so, and from my perspective at least, the list has led to some really important reporting. And as far as I know, I haven't heard of any unfair repercussions as a result of the list. Again, I think the best way to put it is I think it's a messy solution to a messy problem.
1: Uh, Katie, as we wrap up, I wanted to make sure that we address the fact this is not just famous men who do these things or prominent men that do these things uh, that need to be held accountable. You've written about powerful, non-globally famous or even nationally famous men alleged to have raped people. Your latest report is documenting these hundred and... 80-plus allegations of sexual assault at a a company called Massage Envy, which is a a chain of spas around the country. Maybe you could talk, tying in this piece and some of the other reporting you've done, but about how women across the country are facing the same kinds of sexual assault, rape, sexual harassment that Harvey Weinstein's victims face, but there really isn't reporting on it.
5: My story was about... Predominantly women going to massage envy spas and being very brutally sexually assaulted by male massage therapists. There are just so many reports of it. And after looking into it, I found that the policies and practices of the company is to investigate these claims internally without any training or outside help. And I think from colleges to businesses such as Massage Envy, there are a lot of companies and institutions that really care about protecting their brand, sometimes more so than assuring that these complaints are handled appropriately. But then, of course, our criminal justice system is completely awful at investigating and handling rape claims, which is something I also report a lot about. So I hope that this cultural moment that is happening now trickles down so that people whose assaulters are not famous are still being addressed, even if they're not Harvey Weinstein or a politician.
1: Betsy, I have to ask you, because you're the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, a former employee of First Look, our parent company, who also did work on Intercept stories uh, over a certain period of time, Morgan Marquis Spohr, there are very serious allegations of rape that have been leveled against him. Uh, the Verge did a, a very in-depth uh, report on these allegations. We also, I mean, there are specific women I know, when this started coming out, told me that friends of theirs had been victims of him. Maybe you could explain to people who listen to this show or are supporters or readers of The Intercept, your perspective on that case, because you just had to deal with the fact that you had a man who was employed At our institution and did do work and was bylined on some pieces at The Intercept, accused of very heinous, serious crimes, including rape.
0: Morgan marquis was a director of security here. He was working directly with The Intercept in 2015. So I overlapped with him for about nine months. And then he went on to a different role within First Look. And, you know, throughout, we actually did not hear any Allegations like this about him and his employment here ended in September of this past year, right before like three weeks before all of this spilled out on social media. So I can understand how it kind of looked like, oh, we discovered this and fired him. But like that actually didn't happen. We were like as shocked as anyone else reading this on social media and horrified. And we also had no kind of specific allegations from anyone to follow up on, um, because this did not actually happen to anyone who's on our staff. And that was not true of Freedom of the Press Foundation and Citizens Lab, his other employers. And they did their own internal process of investigation, and they made statements. Um, But since we didn't have an accuser, there was nothing to actually follow up on until we saw the exhaustive and chilling report in The Verge by Sarah Jiang, which laid it out in painful detail um, with many very specific claims from multiple different women. And at that point, you know, we felt like it was really important for us to make a statement about it. And, you know, to say that We have no tolerance for this kind of behavior here. But not only that, that we actually, you know, we recognize that this person was in our orbit and is accused of these things. And we're determined to stamp out misogyny and sexual harassment and abuse and do anything, everything in our power to confront it and to support the women who have come forward.
1: We're going to leave it there. Betsy Reed, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Jeremy.
1: Katie Baker, thank you, and uh, congrats on um, such great reporting over a sustained period of time. It's a great public service you do.
0: Thank
5: you so much.
1: Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, and Katie Baker is an investigative reporter at BuzzFeed News. For the first time in 37 years, the African nation of Zimbabwe has a president who is not Robert Mugabe. Last week, Mugabe's former vice president, Emerson Mnangagwa was sworn in. This followed a series of moves by a collection of powerful Zimbabwean military figures where they seized control of state television and told Mugabe to his face that he was no longer president. Now, Mugabe did put up somewhat of a fight, we understand, but when his own party, ZANU-PF, sacked him and he faced near-certain impeachment, Mugabe accepted his fate. The events of the past year in Zimbabwe made clear that there was going to be a showdown over the future control of the country. The only real question was whether it would happen before or after the 93-year-old Mugabe died. Mugabe had made very clear that he had chosen his wife, Grace, as his successor. Widely viewed as corrupt and out of touch, Grace and her G40 faction of the ruling ZANU-PF party We're not going to take power without a very serious fight. So in some ways, what the military did was to hasten events that seemed inevitable. Now, China has substantial investments in Zimbabwe in mining, construction, and security, and has long had a close relationship with Robert Mugabe. What role, if any, Beijing may have played in this military coup uh, is not clear at this point. Under Robert Mugabe, Zimbabwe's economy has been a disaster. And his rhetoric of giving land and sustainability to the country's overwhelmingly black majority has consistently proven hollow. Zimbabwe is a country rich in mineral resources, yet the vast majority of Zimbabweans struggle to make ends meet in their daily lives. Despite his human rights abuses and authoritarian rule, Mugabe has long been preferred by Western powers— At the time of Zimbabwe's independence in 1980, Mugabe was seen by the United States as a safer alternative to more progressive forces and allies of Nelson Mandela's ANC in neighboring South Africa. The new president of Zimbabwe was himself a longtime ally of Mugabe and was uh, considered a hero of their independence war, and he was also the former head of the country's security services. His nickname is the Crocodile. Emerson Manangangwa has a reputation for brutality and as Mugabe's enforcer. Early last month, he claimed that he had to be airlifted to South Africa after an attempt to poison him. Many Zimbabweans believe that Mugabe or his wife were behind it. We may never know. But the point is that now this man is in charge of Zimbabwe. To get a sense of what is happening on the ground right now, we go to the capital, Harare, where we are joined by a Zimbabwean journalist. We are not going to name our guest for his own safety, but we now welcome him to Intercepted. Thank you. Explain why you felt anonymity
2: was necessary at this moment. We have been getting um, WhatsApp messages uh, about soldiers who... Uh, asking for people's uh, IDs. If you don't have your, your IDs, you're taken to uh, their barracks where they interrogate you and people are talking about people being, being disappeared. Uh, there is no, there's no ways of uh, verifying this, but when you look at uh, the treatment that has been meted out on the former Minister of Finance, uh, Ignatius Chombo, he was abducted from his home, was held uh, at a barrack somewhere, days on end until he appeared in court last weekend. So um, there is still an atmosphere of of fear because we don't know what they're looking for. We don't know when this will end. Uh, Our Soldiers are still patrolling. We basically are in a state of emergency.
1: Explain the political context of what happened, because it seemed as though when the military came to tell Mugabe basically he was finished. They didn't go to kill Mugabe or execute him in public. And in fact, uh, the man who is now the president, Emerson Munangawa, he was Mugabe's vice president and some months ago was sacked by Mugabe. So was this a coup? Is this just sort of uh, ZANU-PF continuing on, albeit without Mugabe? Like, What's happening right now?
2: Basically, what's going on now, maybe uh, you could call it uh, Mugabeism without Mugabe. The reason why the army, there's been doubts about what happened. And in fact, even when the army uh, took over, uh, when they went on on ZBC, our local uh, broadcaster, they were uh, keen to emphasize that it was not a coup. We wish to make it abundantly clear that this is not a military takeover of government. But actually, it was a coup in all but name because basically what they did was they basically went to Mugabe's house and uh, disarmed his uh, presidential guard and fought away everyone who was opposed to what they were doing, including the deputy director general of uh, the Central Intelligence uh Organization. They went after him. He was arrested for uh, for some days and um, Mugabe himself, maybe for the first two or three days, couldn't uh, move out of um, his uh, property in the north of Ferrari. So it was a coup. Uh, so what precipitated, um, what the army did was um, the firing of uh, Emerson Munangagwa, who's um, a hero of uh, the War of Independence, which was fought between 1972 In in 77, he became um, Mugabe's personal assistant. And before that, in the 60s, he had been part of uh, what's called uh, in Zimbabwe, the Crocodile Gang, which explains the crocodile, Monika, that uh, is attached uh, to President uh, Munangakwa. Um, So he is a deeply uh, revered figure in in ZANU-PF, especially among the, the security elites. And uh, they saw him as key to the Mugabeist uh, project. But a few years ago, uh, Mugabe had uh, started to show that he had other intentions. And um, it was around this time that his wife, uh, Grace Mugabe, also started showing political ambitions. And so basically what happened was to stop Mugabe from imposing his wife as his successor.
1: Uh, This man who now is the president, Manangawa, he also has a reputation for brutality and uh, was at times running various entities within the security apparatus, the intelligence apparatus for uh, Robert Mugabe. Talk about his reputation for brutality or repression within Zimbabwe as a sort of henchman for
2: Robert Mugabe. So, what happened was uh, in the 60s, in the, in the early 60s, there was this one big party which was called um, Zimbabwe African People's Union, uh, ZAPU, which was led by Joshua Ngomo, uh, who is now late. So, Mugabe and other key people in, in this party broke away and formed what is now ZANU. And so, with time, ZAPU came to be identified as a, as a Debele party. And the Debele are, are people in the. In the south of the country, so uh, with the result that uh, in eighty one there was um, battles in the townships, in Bulawayo, which is our our second city, scores of people died, and then from that time, the war kind of moved between guerrillas from these two two parties to a war against all the. Uh, speaking people in the south and the southwest of the country. And it is estimated that up to 20,000 people were killed. In, in this operation, Emerson Munangakwa and uh, parents Shiri who is now their vice-marshal. And people like Eneska Dungure was now late. And uh, the former defense minister in in Mugabe's government Sidney uh, Sekramai uh, were key uh, lieutenants in basically killing people who were defenseless. And Munangakwa was the more vulnerable uh, person in this war, he'll basically threaten people, and which is why, uh, especially in the south of the country, among the Ndebele people, uh, his ascension to power has been viewed with fear because of his key role. It's easy to to blame him for what happened, but actually the person who was ultimately responsible for what happened was uh, Mugabe himself, although obviously he had uh, key lieutenants, people like uh, Emerson Munangagwa.
1: Explain who Robert Mugabe was when Zimbabwe won its independence.
2: The man himself, actually, I think it was in in 81, he says, what I was, I still am.
3: I just don't care what they say, as long as I know I'm right. So they can say anything in their papers, uh, damage me in every way possible, as long as the people I lead are behind me and approve of what we are doing. That's what matters.
2: I don't think Mugabe has changed. I think Mugabe remains the man that he was um, in the 80s, authoritarian, brutal, with no ideology of his own. When we look at the man, he comes back uh, from Ghana um, in the early 60s to show he had been teaching in in Ghana. Some of the people around uh, the nationalist movement decide to invite him to a talk, and he talks before these people, and some of them who were barely educated or, or semi-literate or with uh, basic education, and they hear this guy who speaks nice English, who has uh, two degrees or three degrees at the time, he is invited to join PF not because of espousing any, any revolutionary talk, it was more like he is... Well spoken. In in fact, actually, the first role that he is given by the party is as a publicity a secretary, which kind of shows you what his value at the time was. It was as a ventriloquist to channel whatever the party wanted him to say, and they wanted someone who could say it in in the nicest English possible, and Mugabe was that person. So when in the West, they talk about Mugabe as a good guy, basically what they mean was he protected the interests of big capital, and which is why the British embassy, the Australian embassy, the American embassy were quiet about the killings in the the South, because while these killings were going on, Mugabe was protecting white capital or Western capital. When Mugabe came to power in Zimbabwe early on,
1: George H.W. Bush, who was the vice president at the time, called him a genuine statesman. And then a decade later, he was actually knighted by Queen Elizabeth. It's been a great pleasure to have had the opportunity today to meet with
4: Prime Minister Robert Mugabe of the Republic of Zimbabwe. As the first prime minister of Africa's newest independent state, his wise leadership has been a crucial factor in healing the wounds of civil war and developing a new nation
1: with new opportunities. What was the Western agenda in supporting
2: Robert Mugabe? What did the West hope to gain from him? For them, it was more of a case of um, who do we prefer? Zapu, the Joshua Ngomo led uh, uh, Zapu. He had uh, closer links with the ANC in South Africa. So what they didn't want was, um, was uh, for Zappu to come into power in Zimbabwe because what it will mean is to expose another front cuz already in 75 Mozambique had got independence and ANC guerrillas were already beginning to trickle into into South Africa from Mozambique
3: ah of course we are not a frontline state uh, the struggle in South Africa is a, a national struggle for South Africans and not one we should regard we should regard as Zimbabweans, is um, our own concern. You will not support an armed struggle in Zandar. No, we will not.
2: So imagine if, say, uh, Zafui had come into power in 1980, it would mean another front, like a longer one, actually, has been opened in the war against um, apartheid South Africa. So it was more, more of a case of um, which is the better devil. At least they knew that ZANU had no close uh, relationship with ANC, and uh, it would be better to have uh, uh, Mugabe, in power in Zimbabwe than to have uh, the Joshua led uh, party. I think the bigger prize really was South Africa, and uh, they wanted to prolong apartheid for as long as possible. Uh, you raised this about the knighthood in '94, Bush uh, describing him as, um, as a statesman.
3: Met him many years ago on a visit to his country and seen him several times since then, but i uh, just so pleased you're with us. <laughs> Very right. glad to have you here.
2: So he was all these things when Western capital was safe, this is the Mugabe that is celebrated, especially among the progressive uh, left in, in the States, among Afro-Americans in the left. This is the Mugabe that they know, but they don't know the other Mugabe, the pre-2000 Mugabe, who basically was killing black people and preserving Western capital's hegemony in Zimbabwe intact. So it has always been about power. It has always been about power. Even now, In the negotiations, he still was insisting, can I be allowed to finish my term? You know, even though he can barely keep awake, he can barely walk, there was no national interest in Mugabe continuing in power. And this is what um, his lieutenants uh, finally realized. This is what ordinary citizens would realize this a long time ago, that Mugabe's continued stay in office is of no national interest.
1: Now that you've had this very quick transition from... Mugabe to Emerson, uh, Munangagwa. What are your biggest concerns about Munangagwa running the country?
2: We have um, elections next year. And these people uh, who who effected the coup have previously said that they won't accept any president who didn't participate in, in the war. So the question which everyone has been asking here is this, that do you think if another person who is not Emerson, Munangaka wins the election. Are they going to accept the result? Or are they going to do to that person what they did to Mugabe? My second uh, reservation is um, to do with the brand of economics that uh, Munangaka's regime might bring. Uh, I think it was preferred by the Chinese, and which is why there are these whispers about that the coup had um, sanctioned from the Chinese because the general who led the coup A few days before he led the coup, he had been in China. And it is thought that he told them that this is what we are planning. It's difficult to verify that, as the Chinese uh, say, we had no knowledge of of this. My point is this. In China, munangakwa was preferred in China... Munangaka was preferred in Britain. Munangaka was preferred in, in the West because he was seen as good for business. He wants uh, to turn uh, Zimbabwe back to its neoliberal ways of the 80s, where where it was easy for business to operate. You know, however, um, warped, uh, that the later Mugabe brought the economic nationalism, giving land to black people, basically destroying the monopoly of white people over the most productive land. Uh, in Zimbabwe. So, um, if the early signs are anything to go by, Mnangagwa might reverse the gains that the later Mugabe achieved for Zimbabweans.
1: If elections were held you know, tomorrow, what's your sense of the political temperature in the country right now? Are people okay with uh, ZANU PF continuing on, albeit without Mugabe, or as you put it, Mugabeism without Mugabe? Or do you get a sense that there's a wide belief that? Things need to
2: radically change. If it were up to me, I would prefer a transitional arrangement maybe of five years in which things are stabilised because this country barely functions. And I don't care if it is under Amazon... Munangaga or anyone else, because we have been having elections for for the last I don't know for the last you know seventeen years and nothing has has changed and people are are tired, which is why to an extent people are not really concerned about politics because you are more worried about where can I get money to go to work you know people don't get paid end of the month the country imports basically everything including milk the country doesn't work at all and. If it are up to me, I would prefer a longer transitional arrangement in which the country is fixed and then a time in which we do security a sector a reform. Because if against all odds, the MDC wins the elections next year, do you think the army is going to allow that when they removed their most revered you know, figure, so... I think if we have elections, say today or next week or next month or next year, Emerson Mnangako is going to win. As we
1: wrap up here, are there any other points that you want to make or information that you think would
2: be important for people to understand about this current situation? It was a coup, despite this the semantic quibling. Um, it was a coup and um, Mugabe is gone. And people are really excited about the end, not because they they love the army, but because um, Mugabe had brought, you know, the crisis uh, that began in um, 2000 brought the country to its knees. And people left to go to South Africa, to go to Botswana, to go to the States, to go to the UK. And uh, families were destroyed. But people are are excited that maybe this is the beginning of, uh, and people have been calling it, a new independence that the day that Mugabe uh, resigned that people have been calling it the second independence but as people here say you know Zimbabwe proves that there is no bottom you you keep on climbing the depths and uh, the new guy people are willing to give him time to effect change and bring back the country back into the international uh, community
1: I want to thank you very much for being with us and for offering your analysis. Thanks for joining us on Intercepted. You're welcome. That was a Zimbabwean journalist speaking to us from Harare. We granted him anonymity because of fears of reprisals. To close today's show, we're going to resume our series of dramatic reenactments of classified NSA documents provided by whistleblower Edward Snowden. You may not know it, but the NSA has its own secret online newspaper. It's called SID Today, which stands for Signals Intelligence Directorate Today. And the reason you've probably never heard of it is because SID Today contains classified information. And it's published by the National Security Agency, and it's available only to NSA employees who have security clearances. Signals Intelligence is the NSA's shorthand for the type of information it collects by eavesdropping on electronic data across the world. SID today has even had its own columnists, who at the NSA are regular agency staffers who wrote in their spare time. There's been a columnist on grammar, another on office etiquette, and there's even been a columnist on the ethics of surveillance. These columns were among the documents leaked by Snowden, and The Intercept continues to publish scores of them on an ongoing basis. In this installment of the series, we hear the story of an intern at the NSA who explains how his views of the agency differ from his college days when his only understanding of the NSA came from news articles and Hollywood movies. Here is Culture Shock, NSA from the Perspective of Summer Interns, starring comedian Joe Para.
3: Being idealistic young interns, we were excited about the big find we just made. We were explaining the trail of singing to our project lead, so eager to get it all out that we barely stopped for breath between words. We found this woman. Nadia, Nadia Lulu, as she's our target's wife, so, so we're trying, trying to track, track his movements, movements that way. way. Redacted slowly began to mm-hmm. smile as we spoke, and finally asked, "Wait, Wait. what is her Wait. name?" We repeated, "Nadia, Nadia Lulu." We're not sure, sure if that's how you pronounce it, though. though. Redacted burst out laughing and did not explain himself for what seemed like an eternity. We. The starry-eyed interns just stared blankly at each other, wondering if this long-time nsa -er had finally cracked. All we could say was, What? What's What's wrong? At last, he said, Spell it. We responded hesitantly. L-N-U That means last name unknown. We felt quiet and we just hung our heads in embarrassment, knowing the story of our rookie acronym mistake would soon be public knowledge to all of S2I6. This is just one example of how interns who come to the agency motivated to soak up all of the knowledge they can usually fall flat on their faces on more than one occasion. On the very first day we arrived, we were hit with culture shock. For instance, when we stepped onto the solemnly quiet elevator, an older gentleman turned to us and asked us if we were new. Hey, are you guys new? We answered yes. We must have been wearing our insecurities on our sleeves. All he replied was, the only thing you need to know is we don't talk to the elevators and the extroverts look at other people's shoes. All we could think was, what have we gotten ourselves into? As members of the intelligence analysis program, We expected to come to work this summer and have all the facts and figures readily available at our fingertips. We picture data flying through cyberspace at supersonic speeds, helping us catch terrorists in the blink of an eye. Little do we know, you cannot simply hack into someone's Facebook account and steal all their photo albums. Open source research is not as effortless as it seems in the outside world especially when you are accustomed to the speed of your stylish MacBook at college. We had imagined the formidable NSA police greeting us every morning at the gate with their large submachine guns, so there was no disappointment there. However, we also visualized workstations with some of the most advanced computer systems conceivable and high operating speeds, which turns out is not quite the case. After viewing all the popular media that depicts the NSA as the embodiment of Big Brother, we also did not expect regulations on targeting U.S. persons to be so strict. We kept waiting to hear about the ultra-secret, a mythological level believed to be above top-secret product line that is permitted to target domestic communications. Some interns starting out at the NSA expected to be swallowed up by a spooky big brother organization. But instead, we find that we are cheerfully welcomed into the government. And to our surprise, the welcoming committee wasn't wearing trench coats and sunglasses. What we were trying to express is that the NSA can be an intimidating place for a young intern. We were initially overwhelmed with a five-page long list of acronyms, a diverse array of tools with our baffling names, and a challenge to overcome our assumptions about what we thought the agency did. However, it is also an extremely rewarding place to work. With ample room for movement throughout different offices and so many diverse targets, a college student thirsting for knowledge would be hard-pressed not to find something that interested them. In our opinion, it would be hard to get that rewarding feeling of defending our country anywhere other than the NSA. Sure. You might hide quietly in the background and never be famous, that feeling of fulfillment from work is hard to replace and, as Redacted would say, who doesn't love doing the happy happy joy joy dance of discovery?
1: And that does it for this week's show. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. Our honorary producers are Cam Cowan and Natalie Holm Ellsberg. Many thanks to you both for making this show possible. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack D'Isidoro. And our executive producer is Letal Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Rick Kwan, mixed the show. Elise Swain is our production assistant and graphic designer. Anthony Atamanik is our Trump whisperer. Special thanks to Ali Garib and Michael Bloom for their breakout performances in the Snowden dramatization. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. It's been a long, long time though since any Arab leader wore me out with a fire hose. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Hold on a
3: second. <laughs> Hold on a second. Hold
1: on a second. All right, all right. We <laughs> got. It's been a long, long time though since any Arab leader wore me out. <laughs> This is going to be very difficult to do without laughing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing.